Running on empty, or at least trying to, I'm Lance Leffler. We'll look at this weird idea I came up with on today's episode of God Meets the Grind. Imagine the scene. You arrive at church really late. It doesn't matter whose fault that is. You're starving because, well, somebody forgot to set their alarm and you didn't have time to eat. Again, doesn't matter who. But your wife sends you to the snack table. Someone else steps up to the table at the same time. You acknowledge each other. Your stomach growls. A quick scan of the table turns up plates of crumbs, a few coffee stains, and one beautiful pink cardboard box. It has to be the most glorious pink you've ever seen. Pinker than... Pinker than... Ah, there's no time to figure it out. You step forward and lift the lid, and there you see it. One solitary, luscious, chocolate-glazed donut with a kaleidoscope of sprinkles on top. Some colors you're sure you've never laid eyes on before. You cast a glance at the sanctuary where everybody's singing. How did they all miss this, you wonder? As you turn back, you lock eyes with the stranger. He doesn't blink. He seems bigger now, and closer. You hear only the sound of your own heart thumping in your chest. You swallow. He still doesn't blink. And yet his eyes don't dry out. How does he pull that off in January? You wonder about him. Maybe he's a church member. But maybe he's an axe murderer who wandered in out of the cold. Maybe he's both. All these thoughts run through your head, but there's one question that's gnawing at you. What are two strangers going to do with one donut? This isn't one of those churches that cuts their donuts in half. We'll come back to this, and against all odds, I bet I can make it fit today's message. Okay, in this session, we're looking at a fascinating passage. You're going to like this. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about just how absolutely pivotal this passage is for understanding Jesus and unity. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Remember last time when Paul said we are to count others more significant than ourselves, which we discovered is really about serving others? Well, in this paragraph, Paul's going to ground this mandate in the ultimate example of counting others more significant than yourself, Jesus' death on the cross. Well, actually, more than that, his whole humiliation. So Paul exhorts us in verse 5, to have the same mind or attitude Jesus had, who, and here's where he describes what's called the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation is when the eternal Son of God became a man. Verse 6 now. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So two ideas here. First, Jesus was in the form of God, which just means he was and is God. The second idea follows up on the first idea. 
Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be, quote-unquote, grasped. Let's look at that last phrase, a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? One easy way I've found to help me understand a particular Bible verse is to look at other versions to see how they translate it. Pause for a commercial. You can get free access to just about every English Bible and hundreds of other languages by downloading the YouVersion app. That's Y-O-U-Version. Let's look at a couple other translations of Philippians 2.7, where the English Standard Version says that Jesus didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped, quote-unquote. The New King James Version translates it like this. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, being equal with God was his status inherently. It wasn't robbery for Jesus to be God. It was who he was. The New International Version translates it, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So the NIV explains it a bit. Jesus didn't wield his divine power for his own ends, nor take refuge in it. Now we get to the heart of the matter, verse 7, which says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, etc. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What is it that he gave up to be born as a baby in Bethlehem? Some have said that he gave up his divinity, that he stopped being God when he became a man. What's wrong with this idea? Just one argument against this. The concept is irrational. If Jesus was God, how could he stop being God? A being can't stop being that being. It's illogical. Could you stop being a human? Can a squirrel stop being a squirrel? So we have to rule out this idea. So, what did Jesus empty himself of when he became a man? Let's check out some other Bible versions and see how they translate this phrase or clause, whatever it is. The New International Version translates it this way. He made himself nothing. So the NIV brings across the big idea. And I think it does a great job of conveying what happened. The King James Version translates it, made himself of no reputation. I think that gets the point across too. And it picks up the theme of servanthood in the rest of the verse, in verse 7. Another version, the New Living Translation, says that he gave up his quote-unquote divine privileges. Given the context that Jesus leaves heaven and becomes a man and serves others and dies for them, this sounds dead on. I think the context here also gives us a good idea of what emptying himself means. It says that Jesus emptied himself, and then immediately it says, and he took the form of a servant. I think these all give us a glimpse of the mystery of the incarnation. By the way, the whole idea is mind-blowing, isn't it? How does that even work? How does God become a man? Even bigger than that, what kind of love is this that he would sacrifice like that for us? We're not as cute and cuddly as we think, you know. Romans 5 verse 10 actually says that Jesus died for us when we were God's enemies. We had made ourselves the enemies of our creator. Because of this mission to the cross, God highly exalts Jesus and gives him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even that wild, powerful tyrant in Rome, Emperor Nero, who, by the way, took to himself the titles Lord and Savior, eventually will bow the knee to Jesus, the real Lord and Savior. Okay, where were we? Remember Paul started this whole discussion back at the beginning of chapter 2, exhorting the believers to be in unity and to pursue humility. 
Considering others more important than ourselves. That's the big hairy idea. To drive home the centrality of self-giving in the Christian life, Paul turned to the story of Jesus humbling himself to become a man and die on the cross, the ultimate example of self-giving. This is the touchstone of Christianity. Jesus was the example for us of what perfect humanity looks like. Paul points to this so we have a picture of what it looks like to live for God. And in his death, Jesus released us from our selfish tendencies. When we serve others, we empty ourselves of ourselves. And of course, our biggest obstacle to serving is ourselves. Specifically, being full of ourselves and focusing on ourselves, our wants, our needs. If Jesus can give up the glories of heaven, come to earth and be put upon, harassed, tried and executed in a rescue mission of love for the world, then we can give up the last donut at church on Sunday morning. There, bet you didn't think I was going to make that story fit. So how do we empty ourselves of ourselves? I would suggest we look to Jesus' example. Cherish the meditation of the cross. Fill your soul with it. What I mean by that is to cherish Christ in his humiliation. If that sounds a bit morbid, consider this. In John chapter 12, Jesus referred to the cross as his glorification because by it, he defeated the powers of darkness and provided the grounds for our forgiveness and reconciliation. That is so weighty. The cross was horrific, no doubt about it. Not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual, taking the punishment for our sins. But chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. What was that joy? You. I love the lyrics of the song Mercy Tree by Lacey Sturm. On a hill called Calvary stands an endless mercy tree. Every broken, weary soul, find your rest and be made whole. The cross is full of glory to us, its beneficiaries. As raw and twisted as that sounds to human ears, this is why I think the author of the book of Hebrews encourages us to look to Jesus. Whatever that involves, it certainly includes pondering the suffering of our Savior and considering just how great a salvation he won for us. I believe this pondering of the example of Jesus inspires us to be just a little bit more like him. But it gets better. In the next section of Philippians 2, we'll see how God actually empowers us to face the grind, to live the Christian life. That's next time on God Meets the Grind.